Alright, round two. Uh, so this is the second of our podcast dealing with Wes Schantz's question, what, if any, discernible philosophical framework does our country rest upon, and is it in any way defensible today? Um, the more that I've been thinking about it, the more I've actually been dissatisfied with last week's podcast as far as answering this question is concerned, mostly because I think I didn't answer the question or even get us that much closer to answering the question. Um, as much as I think that a historical analysis of what the founders were kind of thinking through and what philosophical principles they were, they were juggling at the time is important to understanding it, um, I don't think I quite came to a satisfactory conclusion, like even so far as what principles were in fact crucial to the founders as they were thinking. I think I identified quite a few of them, but I didn't tie them together and maybe that's honestly for the best. Maybe they really weren't tied together in the founders' minds or in ours. Again, you know, founders had different perspectives. They're frequently in conflict with each other. It seems like it would be fairly reasonable for our country to be built on a nest of contradictions. Um, so to some degree, I suspect that that works, but I still want to kind of revisit that. Um, for lack of a better structure, I'm going to be flying by the seat of my pants on this one because, again, like there are some things that I do very much intend to talk about and sort of want to address. Um, but I also get the sense that this question is just bigger than I am. Um, there's too much going on. Like, asking, you know, what is the philosophical framework that our country is built on is kind of... There's so many dimensions that you could answer it in. Like, I approached it from the historical side last time, I'm, and sort of like the history of philosophy side, um, but it's also changed so much in the 250 years since the founder were, founders were originally writing, and to some degree, like, what America is is kind of independent of the ideas that the founders had for us. Um, so there are a few things that I do sort of want to revisit from the old lecture and sort of draw out and then confront in this one. Um, and I'm hoping to finish up today, but we will see. Um, so first, I definitely want to stress the, the idea of religious and ideological freedom, um, which was very much something that did come up in the last lecture and something that I did very much focus on. Um, I stress that there really isn't a religious framework underlying the, the founding of the Constitution, the founding of our country, America in general. Um, and most of the people who have been banging on lately about like America is a fundamentally Christian nation or it relies on Christian morality, um, I think there's probably some truth to that to some of the founders, but I do stand with my original opinion that really religion isn't what America has ever been about. Um, America was born out of religious strife, or the sort of recognition that certain groups of people were being oppressed because of their religion, specifically the Puritans, the Quakers, the non-mainline Anglicans or Catholics who were very much getting legislated against in the 17th century British political world. Um, so really, the Constitution was not devised to sort of defend and propagate one particular religious or philosophical position so much as to defend the possibility of any number of religious and philosophical positions. And while, yes, at the time that was primarily Christian, that does not mean much when Christianity can be as diverse as what the Quakers are doing, what the Puritans are doing, what the Anabaptists are doing, and so on and so forth. Um, I think we are well within the parameters set forth by the founders when we 
um, encourage religious tolerance for Buddhists, for Muslims, for Wiccans, for people from a variety of different religious backgrounds. Um, I suspect that the founders themselves were deists, basically like one step removed from Christian atheists or like hard agnostics in the sense of David Hume. Um, I don't think they had a whole heck of a lot of commitment to any one particular religious perspective, Christian or otherwise. And again, like different founders have, have different emphases. It, there seems to be some pretty strong suggestion that George Washington, for example, was a fairly ardent Christian in his way. Um, if only because, you know, he's the one who insists on adding un, or so help me God to the inauguration address. Um, different men in this world were influenced by different ideologies had different strengths of their convictions as far as their religion was concerned but the document that they produced was i think largely atheistic i think the principle that they were trying to enshrine is that everyone should be allowed to practice religion in their own way um with christian in mind maybe not with others but it doesn't seem too far a stretch to imagine you know all of these religions falling under this idea um, but I also want to emphasize the ideological side of this. Um, like as much as, you know, you kind of get caught up in the, the question of the separation of church and state, um, I think that it is every bit as important that America, since its founding and beyond, has been a place for, for the most part, free intellectual discourse. I think that is one of the principles that this country was founded on, if only because, you know, again, the first amendment to the Constitution is that Congress will not abridge the freedom of speech. Um, we are meant to exchange ideas here, and I, I think that's something that survives history as well. Um, like, we have, to some degree, always... Uh, taken pride in the fact that people can disagree in this country and still work together, work in concert, work civilly. Um, so if we do have a sort of name for this ideological perspective, this sort of enshrined principle, um, historic to the Constitution, but also sort of enshrined and protected by the Constitution, I would call it pluralism. Um, and I tend to throw that word around a little generously, especially in this case. Um, I am a champion of pluralism. Um, what I basically mean is just this, the idea that, you know, we can disagree about the fundamental truths about the universe, whether or not there is a God, whether or not we have free will, and still civilly work together, um, still come together, debate, come to agreements, make laws, basically... I think that there is, at the core of this country's ideology, this separation between what Ferdinand Tunis would have called Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft, uh, community and civil society. Um, now, to some degree, that distinction is kind of bullshit. And I recognize that that distinction is kind of bullshit. Like, one of the first papers I wrote when I was an undergrad that I'm actually fairly proud of, and if I recall, I actually got it published, um, was basically saying that Gesellschaft, civil society, is just a specialized form of Gemeinschaft, community. Um, people who disagree with this free exchange of ideas are different from people who think that this is a virtue. Um, it's not some kind of separate way of governing people. It is, in fact, you know, just another way of governing people. Um, but I do want to stress that there is something special about it. Um, pluralism 
is valuable in its own right, I want to say. Um, if America has ever been great, it has been great largely due to its ability to hold different ideas in concert with one another, to allow people to express themselves even when they disagree, um, to specifically not st stamp down on people who disagree with the, the majority or with the sort of dominant voice um, in politics or in the media or, else, or elsewhere. Um, and I honestly think that this is probably one of the problems that we've run into in the last 10, 20 years. Um, but we'll get into that, I assume, at a later time. Um, so one of the major ideas that I want to stress is pluralism. I think this is one of the most important ideas that the Constitution was sort of devised to protect. One of the principal tenets of what may carefully be called an American philosophy. Um, not all of them are that good, though, I'm afraid. Uh, the second one that I definitely want to talk about, and part of this is because I've been having some serious conversations with my, you know, friendly disputant, um, who I mentioned in the first lecture. Uh, I want to stress that a lot of the philosophical ideas that are getting kicked around here have a lot to do with property. Um, like John Locke, when he is you know, writing his two treatises concerning government um, and in a lot of his other writings, as well as most of the 17th century British political philosophers like Hobbes um, and even the 18th century uh, French philosophes, which are all like super important to the, the philosophical makeup um, of the founders, um, they very much emphasize the importance of property, um, that this is what government is designed to protect. Um, the whole point of government is to prevent other people from taking your property, and the reason why you agree to belong in a government is to keep your property protected. Um, and this is a very modern concept, like it goes all the way back to Machiavelli talking about how a prince can totally send sons off to war as long as you don't take the farms from the tenant farmers. Um, he is stressing that people are more protective of their property than they are of their family which is absolutely sick and disgusting and also pretty observably true based on all of what history has to teach us. Um, but the trouble is this may not, like as much as pluralism like shows its virtues, as much as we want to enshrine the virtue of pluralism, as much as we want to sort of build unity from diversity and to appreciate other people's ideas and learn from like different perspectives, Property is a much harder thing to defend from a moral perspective, and it is another one of those that is very controversial, very much at the core of the disagreements happening now. Um, there has been a lot said, like it, for a while there, especially in the summer when the Black Lives Matter protests were happening, um, there were a lot of people talking about how, you know, it doesn't matter how upset people are, they shouldn't resort to destroying property, either, you know, whether big corporate property like the Target that was that was burned or public property like the police station. Um, this was this was the line. The the government is responsible to protect private property and therefore the cops were well within their rights to disperse rioters by any means necessary who were engaged in destroying or damaging public property. And by contrast, the, the liberals were firing back, you know, you care about stuff more than you care about lives. Um, 
And this is one of those places where that conflict becomes most salient, I think. On some level, it's absolutely true that stealing is wrong. Like, I, you know, have my nice apartment with all my books in it and my computer, and, you know, I need this stuff to do my job to some degree. Like, I serve society with the help of this. What's more, I, it, like, I enjoy these things. I, I paid good money for these things. I worked hard for them. Now I own them. I feel like I should protect them. If somebody broke into my apartment and tried to steal my stuff, I would, I would think that I would be well within my rights to defend them. Um, but on the flip side, at the cost of a human life is where things become dodgier. Um, there is some disagreement about what the punishment should be in this case. Um, and what's more, when you get into questions of disenfranchisement, like I may have my stuff and I may be protective of it, but isn't it also true that I don't have enough stuff. Like, I work my butt off. I work for employers who do not value my time or my labor or my energy. Um, they pay me insufficiently for the work that I do. And like many, I am, am, I am poor as a result, despite working my butt off. Um, isn't that unfair? Isn't that exploitative? And if that's the case, don't we have some God-given right to take what is rightfully ours um, when it has been taken from us? Like, both of these things seem to be true. Both of these ideas ring true to us. Um, for people who work hard, there should be some bare minimum of success that they are, like, obligated to receive. Um, justice is the other issue that's sort of at stake here. Um, and both of these ideas, property and justice, are also very fundamental to what the Constitution and what the founders were interested in doing. Um, like, justice is the fundamental principle on which all governments have been founded, as much as it may get distorted in the process of its, like, realization. Um, this whole business of, you know, like, religious or... Uh, ideological freedom, this whole business of the, the distribution of property, all of this should be distributed justly. Um, and a couple things, like coming back around to this idea of property, on the one hand, I definitely want to stress that, like, the U.S. government was devised to protect the property of the people devising it, for sure, no question. Like, it comes down to, you know, the Second Amendment defending militias chasing after escaped slaves for, you know, put into the Constitution because so many of the writers and original founders of the Constitution came from slave-owning states and wanted to defend the practice of slavery. Um, a lot of this, like, even those who were not slavers were definitely invested in, you know, their houses, their land, their, their property in one capacity or another. Um, and the, the U.S. has never backed down from that. Like, this is also one of those issues that, that has sort of um, permeated American awareness and philosophy. The American dream very much is having your own passel of land and doing whatever the hell you want with it. Um, be it during Manifest Destiny when everybody is moving west and like buying up, sh you know, small shares of largely uninitiated territories um, down to, you know, like immigrants coming from Europe to set down roots, have their crappy little apartment and, you know, have their slice of the American dream. Um, to this very day, you know, they say a man's king or, or a man's home is his castle. Like, property is a hugely important part of what this country was built upon. 
And I want to stress, like, yeah, there's definitely bad stuff about this. Um, if it isn't coming across, let me make it extremely explicit. Some people have too much shit. Like, there's too much property held by some few people. Um, this is incredibly obvious now. And the American dream of, you know, everybody having their little chunk of land is completely just lost in the world of huge real estate magnates who own, like, huge amounts of land and property and buildings and so on and so forth. Um, it's real hard to defend the American ideal of like everybody having their own little bit of little bit of property when tons of people are working really hard just to pay rent to people who are charging them to be there. Very, it's very much the minority who owns their own home, who owns their own land, who has the freedom that is sort of hoped for here. Um, and the trouble is there are so many rewards built into the system because of or when you own property that the disenfranchisement of people who don't is frequently overlooked in American history. I mean, never mind the fact that the Constitution only considers landowning people to be citizens and therefore able to vote, as though, you know, people who are renting would not be able to have that privilege. Like, can you even imagine what that would look like in this world now? Like, only people who own land can vote? It's just insane. It'd be like, you know, a tenth if less um, of the population would be able to pull that off. Um, but what's more, like... You get into nowadays the, the question of, you know, do you have ID? Do you need an ID in order to be able to vote, in order to prevent voting fraud? Do you, you know, do you need to have an address? Like, should homeless people be allowed to vote? And the sort of answers that we keep coming to are, and eh, they don't, they're not part of the body politic. It doesn't count. That Their opinions don't matter, which is absurd. Like, it, why should the ability to own property, especially when the, the, odds are so much against so many people um, of that happening when you know it is sort of controlled and dis dispensed by a select few um, why should that be the deciding factor of the worth of a human being um, that's messed up um, but at the same time like frequently the conversation of you know wealth versus disenfranchisement comes down to giving property to the people who don't have it rather than sort of rethinking the idea of property altogether. Um, the people who are looting targets aren't doing it because they disagree with the notion of property. They're doing it because they disagree with how it, how it has been parceled out. Um, so, you know, there's a really complicated sort of conversation to be had here where on the one side you have like the injustice being discussed property is a decent concept but it needs to be rethought and reevaluated um, like the way that it is parceled out needs to be changed on the other hand you have people who are against the notions of property altogether which is i suspect a fairly high high road to walk um I think of Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed, where she's sort of describing this very anarchistic, anti-propertarian society on this one moon, um, and how difficult it is to implement that. Like, the entire society has all of these taboos against ownership, but there are all these exceptional cases for all of these situations. You know, the physicist needs his textbook. The, you know, somebody is sort of collecting library books and sort of hanging on to them, and this is skeevy behavior. Um, 
it's really difficult to root out the idea of property, I think. I think this is something fairly intrinsic to human nature. Um, so as much as the, the discussion needs to be had, as much as this idea needs to be questioned, I'm not sure how profitable it's going to be to, in fact, question it. Um, especially when so many people are holding onto it so dearly. But at the very least, now we have three fundamental philosophical grounds. Um, we have this idea of freedom of like intellect and religion, freedom of speech, um, freedom of ideology in short. We have this government is designed for the defense of property, um, for better or worse. And we have this idea that property should be meted out justly. Um, but that brings us to one of the really crucial disagreements um, that is sort of in American thinking, in American, throughout American history and to this very day. Um, how should property be distributed? Um, like, as much as property is incredibly important to this Constitution, I think we need to take it a step deeper on this particular outline of how this is supposed to work. Um, and I think also it's important to look at the disagreements um, as much as, you know, understanding American philosophy has a lot to do with seeing the things that have been constant throughout the ages. I think it is every bit as important that we look at the things that have been disputed, um, the things that don't go away, because that very much shows us the ideas that we have in conflict. Um, and the two that I'm thinking of here are the ways that this property should be distributed. Um, and on the one hand, I think of what is frequently called meritocracy, like the people who work hardest should have the best stuff. Um, the people who are most talented and capable should have more responsibility and more stuff um, to be responsible for than the people who work less hard, who aren't as smart, who aren't as capable. Um, and I realize that this sounds very biased, like... I, that's intentional. It is very much a conservative mindset that I'm looking at, or at least one aligned with contemporary Republicans today. Um, the other extreme, of course, is democracy. Property should be evenly distributed, like everyone should have equal stuff. Um, and I think both extremes are very problematic, but these are sort of the two extremes that we are frequently navigating between in this country, represented by the economic system of capitalism and the Republican Party on one hand, or at least the Republican Party in its current incarnation on the one hand, and on the other hand, the idea that um, democracy should be the fundamental value in our culture. Um, and you'll notice that the founders on the whole didn't like either of those structures. Like the system that they built was, if anything, leaning toward meritocracy away from democracy. Again, they didn't trust people um, for better or worse. Like they did not give voting rights to people who didn't own land. You had to prove yourself in order to earn a place in government, even as a voter. Um, but they also didn't build a strictly meritocratic system, nor did they try to. Like, never mind the, the problems in meritocracy, um, this sort of like pure capitalism where competition is what dictates success on a perfectly even playing field, um, you know, a frictionless environment, so to speak. Um, never mind the fact that they didn't, that there is not a, an easy way to decide who gets what and why, you know, this talent or this ability or this responsibility or this accomplishment is worth more than the others. Um, but on the, you know, they 
very much wanted to emphasize as well that power comes from the people and all of the people at that you know as the declaration of independence says you know all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights on some level the whole american experiment has been an attempt to balance meritocracy and democracy what are the rights of the people versus the privileges of those who you know are most numerous or those who have the most stuff or those who have in theory worked the hardest um there should be equality but there should also be inequality in short you cannot achieve perfectness in either one of them you cannot give to everyone everything that they deserve there's no system there's no way to read the worth of a person but at the same time there should be no like base level beneath which people drop um so you have that again conflict these two ideas very much coming into conflict with one another the government is designed to protect the rights of the many um while protecting the privileges of the few um that's the issue and yeah it's a tricky one i don't have an answer for it like to say that you know everyone should have exactly the same amount is you know communism and has major problems and isn't quite fair because some people really are working harder than others and some people really are you know accomplishing more or are capable of more to say that is not you know bias or supremacist behavior assuming that you do not like align that value according to simplistic ideas like the color of one's skin or one's intelligence or whatever um but on you know there are people who take advantage of the system people who given welfare will find ways to you know cheat rob cheat and steal any amount of money or any amount of success that they can get um, not everyone is good and since not everyone is equally good you cannot apportion stuff equally and still have it be fair um, so not gonna weigh in at least now between these two ideas but again I think that sort of is one of those crucial philosophical issues that America needs to figure out for itself the sort of issue that was written into the constitution originally and has never been solved as a result um so there's now our three ideas sort of rephrased um intellectual and religious freedom on the one hand uh the government is required to protect property on the other and government and the other institutions of this world in some way need to simultaneously protect the basic rights of everyone while also protecting the responsibilities and accomplishments of those who have done something exemplary um they are aspiring to justice even though they're not entirely sure what that justice should look like um now the stuff that i talked about in the last lecture i do want to kind of revisit at this point like the three questions that i left off with were um is rationality as the founders saw it like this enlightenment faith in reason justified um and this is another one of those where it's complicated and there's like conflict to be seen here um frequently when i'm sort of evaluating the accomplishments of the enlightenment and again like i spent a lot of this week sort of going back and forth with 
someone very opposed to my ideas on this one um my take has always been that like we should give enlightenment thinking the benefit of the doubt that we should see what it has to offer and ignore at least for the purposes of this lecture and this lecture series the bad actions of those who did badly with it um whereas my opponent was very much arguing that enlightenment philosophy produced horrors of unspeakable horrors um so i do want to sort of draw a distinction here as far as this discussion of rationality goes um because on one level i do in fact believe the fundamental thing that enlightenment philosophy believes that reason is universal um that there is some united like process of rationality that every single human being whether you know western european or chinese or american or whoever um would have to agree with and follow um i would argue that even aliens would have the same form of rationality as we do um i hold to that pretty strongly um for all of postmodernism's attempts to sort of reject the idea of universal truth or of uni- of some objective perspective um i still do hold to that uh what i do want to distance myself from is the fact that we already know exactly what it is to me the problem with enlightenment thinking and the problem with this sort of faith in reason has less to do with rationality itself as the very bad ways that it has been implemented um like probably the most obvious example that i can think of um is sort of the conflict between the promises of thomas jefferson or emmanuel kant um and the results um so if you look at the declaration of independence it says you know all men are endowed by their creator with these inalienable rights life liberty the pursuit of happiness and while many people have sort of pointed to that and said well that very obviously points only to men that's kind of what i'm getting at um this idea that universal reason is universal is really valuable and important um but it is frequently withheld from huge portions of the population despite the fact that it says in the constitution that all men are created equal this apparently does not apply to black men who are still slaves this apparently does not apply to native americans who are executed by the thousands um in the process of manifest destiny after this text was written um i personally hold to a lot of what jefferson says here and as it is better articulated by kant in his groundwork of the metaphysics of morals that humans have a fundamental dignity that that dignity is worth more than any amount of you know physical goods can ever sort of uh balance there is in short no justification ever for taking a life except in the pursuit of protecting other lives that is the only way that you can balance human lives in my opinion um so to say that you can buy and sell humans is horrible as far as i'm concerned like slavery is an abomination um likewise anyone who is you know trying to calculate insurance costs and like when you are you not going to consider it worth it to help a person survive that's abominable the fact that it is a necessary part of our life is horrifying um 
So the trouble here is that it was very selectively practiced. In my opinion, the Enlightenment philosophy isn't what, what is the problem in this case, like Kant and Jefferson, at least in theory, were correct, but then people proceeded to consider other people not human, which is especially silly. Like, why wouldn't a black man shipped over from Africa have the same rights that Jefferson is talking about in the Declaration of Independence? Why wouldn't they have the same dignity that Kant is talking about in the groundwork of metaphysics and morals? Um, why wouldn't a Native American practicing civilization in a way very alien to white settlers be permitted the same rights, dignities, responsibilities, and respect um, that the white settlers themselves insisted upon showing to each other? Um, and on some level, that means that there was a great deal of hypocrisy running around, both in the 18th century with the founders and in the 19th century as you know America was expanding. This was selectively implemented because it was inconvenient to implement it across the board. Um, and I'm not sure exactly how true it is. Like, I'm sure that it was a huge issue, that, that it was, that this hypocrisy is something that, you know, all of these founders, all of these, you know, former statesmen and heroes should be judged for. History should recognize this hypocrisy. History should absolutely damn the likes of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson for the, their ownership of slaves while supposedly preaching these Enlightenment principles. No question in my mind. Um, but to me, it's not the Enlightenment principles that are the problem in this case. It's the people fallibly implementing them. Um, if we, you know, accept to its extreme the truths that were taught here, that all men and women, all races, all nationalities should have this dignity, should be acknowledged as being worthwhile. Um, that to me doesn't seem like a problem. Um, that to me does not seem like some kind of faulty uh, philosophy to build a nation and a government on top of. Um, that, I think, is one of the things that is most valuable about what the American Constitution and the American experiment, so to speak, has done for us. Um, this is a nation where, at least in theory, we are aspiring toward um, a world where everyone is valued independently of their race, their religion, their color, their creed. Um, that's, that would be an awesome accomplishment. Never mind the fact that we've never achieved it. Never mind the fact that we are still struggling with it to this day and have been backsliding um, pretty regularly since we originally formulated these ideas. Um, it's still a noble thing to aspire to. And just as I wanted to emphasize that the, the conflicts of America are important to understanding who America is and what the fundamental philosophy underlying America is, so too are America's aspirations. Um, you know, a person isn't just what, who they were and what they are. They're also what they ch want to be. Um, you know, a drug addict who goes to rehab and wants to reform their life, that's an important part of who that person is. Um, if America is a drug addict who has been, you know, high on genocide, exploitation, and mistreatment for generations, but is trying to fix that about itself, that's not something we should be dissuading it from. Which is not to say that it's honest, 
Like, obviously, there are tons of bad actors even today. Um, and we should have the conversations about whether this is a system that is designed to encourage bad actors. Um, but it is also something that we should at least, like, be willing to address. Um, we need to have the question, is it the bad actors or is it the idea that is ultimately problematic? Um, is the system living up to its ideals? Is the system actively sort of sabotaging its own ideals? Or is the system, in fact, being perverted by people within the system to achieve the opposite result? Um, like, again, complex questions with a lot going on here. Um, but I do want to stress at the outset that at least the idea, um, the idea that, you know, everyone should be treated equally, at least independently of these superficial things that they cannot control or, or sort of like, um, they cannot control or that define them in some exterior and non-important way, that these should be eliminated. Like, these distinctions should not be important. Um... And again, this kind of ties back to that whole meritocracy-democracy distinction. Um, like, again, in a true meritocracy and in a true democracy, color wouldn't be important. Color, creed, religion, race, gender identity, whatever. Um, it would not be significant to the valuation of a human being. In meritocracy, a black man who achieves incredible things would be viewed the same as a white man who achieves incredible things, would be viewed the same as a Native American, as a, an Asian person. Like, man or woman, black or white, whatever, your accomplishments would be what defined you in a true meritocracy. Likewise, in a true democracy you would all have the same regardless of, again, color, creed, gender, race, etc. Um, that's not what should be defining people. Um, so let's work that as our fourth idea into this, this whole discussion. Um, this fundamental rationality, this indifference to, to uh, superficial or unimportant qualities, the accidents of what makes a human being a human being, totally apart from their contributions to society um, or to, you know, their fundamental dignity. Um, the idea that every human being has this dignity um, apart from all of these accidental characteristics, that's something that America was very much built on and something that I think is worth at least interrogating and protecting for the time being um, until we can come up with a better solution. Um, now, the next question I asked was, what did we go wrong? Like, did we have a good thing and then ruin it? Um, in short, what are the problems of history that have gotten between the original ideas propounded by the founders and now? Um, because a lot of people do frame the discussion of like what America, what has gone wrong with America in that way. Like, the system isn't broken; it's our execution that is broken. Um, it is the fact that it has been perverted by, by centuries of neglect or by centuries of exploitation. Um, that's the problem. It's not the founders who were wrong. It's the fact that we've twisted what the founders had to say. Um, and I am suspicious of that principle. Like, I, I don't think the founders were as incredibly without fault as many seem to insist. I'm certainly not, like, a constitutional defender in that respect. 
Um, but I do want to sort of recognize that there have been major changes and those changes have undoubtedly contributed um, to where we are today as far as like America as a very divided, very angry, very uncomfortable place to be. Um, and I was kind of tempted to do an entire lecture on like the whole 200 year plus span um, of American history and sort of like where the Constitution got messed up. Um, but I th I'm not sure that's entirely profitable for our purposes. Like there, there's a lot that would sort of be ancillary to our point. Um, we do need to talk about where we are now, though. Um, we need to talk about how we got to this place where all of a sudden so many of our principles are either in question or lost or confused. Um, which, you know, again, like part of the reason that I'm having such a problem answering this fundamental question, what are the discernible philosophical principles on which this country is built, um, is because we very much lost sight of some, confused others, distorted others, like, it's a mess. Um, and the couple of things that I do sort of want to touch on as far as, like, the changes that have made... America something different than what it was originally intended to be. Um, the first one that I want to talk about is the whole democracy issue. Um, I stressed in the first lecture that the, the founders weren't terribly fond of democracy, um, and I hold to that. Like, you know, whether or not you, you are on the democratic side of the democratic meritocratic argument or you know, what, no matter what your, your stance on democracy is, pro or con, the founders weren't huge fans, so far as I can tell. They, they tolerated democracy at best. They were not building, building a government to enshrine it so much as they were trying to both protect their government from democracy at the same time as they wanted to protect the rights of the people being represented by the government. Um, the government was supposed to be small enough that it didn't get in the way of day-to-day -day democratic life, but it was also supposed to be large enough that it wouldn't let democratic whims dictate the day. Um, and obviously our country has become, in theory and in, like, in word, more democratic, while also kind of becoming less democratic in other ways. Um, the obvious things to point to as far as how we came, became more democratic is the greater focus on the democratic proce process, um, where once it was democracy only brought into government like the representatives, and the representatives were then responsible for deciding who the senators and who the president was going to be, um, the electoral college system being, you know, the fairly obvious remnant uh, of that you know, original system, which everybody hates the Electoral College at this point, in case you are listening from out of town. Um, we have increasingly decided that democracy is the way to go, that, you know, when the people decide, we get better results than when, you know, smoke-filled rooms full of, like, politicians or educated folk, statesmen and small groups of, you know, particularly privileged individuals they typically don't choose as well as the people as a whole. Um, and again, that makes us more, more like everything that everybody warned about democracy in the classical texts. Um, the idea is that democracy was a breeding ground for tyrants, like Plato talks about. Um, 
as well as the fact that democracy was also fairly safe as governments go because you know a bad tyrant destroys an entire nation a bad democracy can only sort of destroy itself slowly and while a process is like taking place um it's hard to convince 120 people to you know change their minds in a way that it simply isn't to convince one person um both of these are very evident in our country now that democracy has sort of become more and more powerful in that way um, and I tend to think that the whole rise in, of Donald Trump is largely a democratic side effect um, that, you know, because a whole bunch of people are listening to a fairly close um, amount of, you know, news media and a fairly insular environment, um, that's how you get someone like Donald Trump who is willing to throw out the rules and throw out the books and give us give his constituents what he wants while stamp stomping on the ideas of others um you know the the classical writers frequently warned against tyrants being popular heroes like julius caesar is sort of the classic example um it's fairly easy to see parallels between donald trump and the and julius caesar in that way um this sort of popular figure who did not appeal to the you know intelligence or sophistication or um the the politicking of generations past but instead appealed directly to the base instincts of the rabble um and i know that's like a really demeaning way to put it but it's also kind of hard for me to understand in any other way um, at this point like how else do you get someone who just outwardly and unapologetically tells lies sows disinformation um, does not give a damn about the truth and yet people readily and willingly laud him for his choices like i can't wrap my brain around that one in any other way um, to me, this is proof positive that democracy is dangerous, that it is subject to, um, to bad choices in this way. And maybe that is just me and my elitism going back to like all those Roman texts and you know, Cicero and Marcus Aurelius talking about the, the base desires of the rabble. Um, I'm fully willing to admit that. But at the very least we need to acknowledge that the founders were also reading those texts. The founders were also worried about these problems. The founders put checks into place to prevent them from happening. We got rid of them, and then we have tyrants, or at least aspiring tyrants. And I think it's especially important that, you know, in this situation, you know, at this point, like, it's a week after the election, Biden is very much going to be the next president of the united states the vote would very much seem to indicate that despite the fact that there are a lot of lawsuits around and the fight is definitely not over um especially for pro-trump republicans um as much as all that is is the case um I, i'm kind of struck by the fact that in so many situations where donald trump was making a particularly controversial decision where he was you know doing something that that was especially against the interests of a large group of people when he was you know trying to ban muslims from entering the country um 
for example, or when he was trying to, to build the wall or when he, you know, was trying to ban TikTok, what frequently happened was the system got in his way. Um, the structure of government is designed to prevent a tyrant from being able to execute their will without any any question, without any sort of challenge. Um, again, these are the checks and balances that are always so you know popularly discussed um, in in American history and American politics. Um, like the the whole idea that people are selfish and therefore they need to be put in check by other selfish people so that ultimately only when everyone selfishly agrees that you know stuff can be done um, that stuff changes I think it's important that you know the system worked in those cases as much as Trump was very much testing sort of how can he break the system you know if he threatens members of the Justice Department with being fired can he protect his own transgressions um, protect you know the truth of his administrative policies from coming out um, like I do think that he was pretty clearly guilty of obstruction of justice at the very least as ill-defined a term as that may be um, especially in the whole like impeachment process um, and all the people sort of investigating the Trump presidency and determining whether or not it was guilty of foul play. Um, Trump very clearly got in the way. When the system was trying to work, Trump interfered. Um, that's bad, but despite all that, the system, for the most part, worked. Um, like, it didn't work to kick him out of office, it didn't work to limit his executive powers, it didn't work to, you know, completely limit his effect on the nation, but then we had an election and we voted him out, case closed, hopefully everything goes well from here. Um, the system, to some degree, as broken and inefficient as it was, at the end of the day, reflected the will of the people. Or, you know, at least in theory. Um, it protected us from ourselves, I want to say. Um, and again, insufficiently, incompletely, it could have done better, absolutely, not questioning any of that. Um, but the fact that Donald Trump didn't get into office and say, all right, I am now shutting down the news media because I hate them. And I'm now, you know, making friends with Russia because we're friends now. And I'm now like destroying every law, every practice put into place by my predecessors. The fact that he could not successfully do that, that even Obamacare is still, you know, in force is an indication that the system is stronger than any one person can be. Um, the limits to a tyrant's power held to some degree um so kudos to the founders for still building that in um but i want to emphasize that even though that is the case once again we're sort of faced with is this a democracy problem is this a tyranny problem is this a both problem like how did mr trump get into office in the first place how did we end up in a situation where this could happen um, especially because, you know, there aren't very many examples in American history of somebody wielding that kind of tyrannical power. Like, there are some, for sure. You could make Delano Roosevelt wielding way too much power in his day. Um, there were certainly detractors of Andrew Jackson many, many years ago. Um, but what I sort of want to look at now is the particular breeding ground, um, like the, the especially modern problems um, that have brought about a sort of new interest and a new backing for fascism, for, you know, 
the the particular breed of totalitarian populist leaders that we've been seeing in the likes of Donald Trump or Boris Johnson over in England or um, you know other other leaders in South America and in Asia elsewhere why do we all of a sudden have these these powerful quasi dictators coming to the fore again after a hundred years of stories about how destructive those kinds of leaders were um, in World War II and elsewhere. Um, why did we vote for Donald Trump in short? Um, and that's a tricky question. Like, I don't think anyone has successfully figured out the answer to that, although I've heard tons of think pieces on the subject and you know, everybody's got their opinion as far as this is concerned. Um, and I don't think it is simple. I think there's a lot going on here. Um, but I do want to talk about, like, sort of the the institutions, the, the perversions of the original idea of American government um, that allowed someone to get as powerful as Donald Trump did, despite the checks and balances, despite the democratic process, despite the fact that we typically trust our democracy and that our democracy has, for the most part, not steered us too terribly wrong like this in the past. Um, how did people start voting against against their own best interests is kind of what I want to get at here. Um, and I, you know, I, I recognize that I am definitely making the assumption that Donald Trump is against our best interests, and I imagine that some of my listeners have probably already checked out, um, as because they believe that Donald Trump is the best thing that happened to America, and that's exactly the perspective I kind of want to talk about here. I am operating under the assumption that Donald Trump was bad news. Um, I'm not going to try and apologize for that ex assumption or even explain it um, here. Suffice it to say that the country has is more divided now than it ever has been before. And if you want to take out all of my references to Donald Trump and put Hillary Clinton or Obama or Biden in its place, you are welcome to do so because I imagine that from your worldview that will just as easily explain the phenomenon that you're seeing. The fact of the matter is we're all scared right now. Um, we are all afraid that our democracy is falling apart. Like I literally yesterday saw one of my friends on Facebook who is a Trump supporter quoting that line from the third Star Wars movie um, where Padme says this is how democracy dies to thunderous applause while pointing to the parties being held in Philadelphia or New York now that Trump has been, you know, effectively defeated in the election. Um, as much as, you know, I believe that Trump was the biggest threat to our democracy that we have faced in a long time, most people think that Biden is exactly the same threat. Um, or most Trump supporters, I should say. Most Trump supporters believe that Biden is exactly the same threat, that he is as much a danger to democracy as Trump was to me. So that's kind of what we need to talk about. How did we get to that point? The fact that we cannot even agree what constitutes a threat to our democracy um, in our country today. Um, and obviously the first and most important thing you've got to talk about when it comes to how we got to a completely divided electorate um, is political parties. Like, that's the sort of keystone to the whole thing. 
Um, when the Constitution was written, it was written in the hope that there wouldn't be political parties, a rather naive assumption on the part of the people involved. Um, and all the checks and balances of government imply that the different branches of government are going to be opposed to one another in the great Roman tradition. Um, you know, Caesar is frequently at odds with the Senate and vice versa. So what the founders assumed was that that was the way that our government would also play out. Executive branch versus legislative branch versus Supreme Court, each branch trying to get one over on the other branches. Um, but that's not the way that our government played out. Instead, the rise of political parties and especially the sort of two-party system that has dominated most of American history has sort of broken the system insofar as the president is in fact working with a large part of Congress and a large part of the Supreme Court. Partisan values are very much more dominant than the individual values of the legislative, executive, and judicial branches. Um, you are made a judge because of your alignment, not because of your virtues as an actual judge in most cases. Like, it, obviously, if you're a bad judge, it's not going to help you. But even then, you know, a bad judge of the party making the decision is going to have a way better chance than even a good judge of the opposite party in most cases. Um, so the party system broke things. Checks and balances don't work when different parts of the government will work together across or within party lines but not across them um, the executive branch isn't opposed to the legislative branch if the legislative branch and the executive branch are both dominated by the same party as we saw um, with donald trump and his packed republican senate um, like that's a huge issue um, and while to some degree, you know, it doesn't explain where we are now, it is certainly the most important like single factor as far as what sort of brings down the constitution, um, what sort of subverts uh, the constitutional structure, the function that the founders had in mind. Um, this was not a part of the plan and it is a very effective way of getting around the checks and balances that are in fact in place um, there are no checks and balances between the parties besides the parties themselves um, you don't want to make the executive branch too powerful while you are in it because then it might be you know too powerful if you lose it um, that's like the only check in place here uh, but i this is especially important as we come into sort of modern history. Um, like, despite the fact that it's almost always been two parties, there have been exceptions. The know-nothings of the 19th century seem especially important, um, seeing as they sort of transgress party lines in a moment when the two parties were really struggling to sort of find common ground, much like our own times, by the way. Um, as much as, you know, you can like trace party politics and party shifting over long periods of time, I think what we really need to focus on is how our parties are oriented now. Um, and to talk about that, you kind of have to go back to the civil rights movement um, for our sort of contemporary party alignment. Um, up until that point, like through the 19th century, the Democrats were very much the pro-slavery movement. Um, their stronghold was in the Deep South. 
um, as the abolitionists were sort of forming their own party, the National Republicans, um, the Democrats were the, the force of, you know, like historical power dating all the way back to Thomas Jefferson um, being sort of the inheritors of the original Democratic Republican Party. Um, but in the civil rights movement, it sort of fell on Lyndon Johnson, who was himself a Democrat, to start approving civil rights legislation. Um, it was a, a factor of the times. At that point, the Democratic Party still, you know, had a pretty strong lock on, um, on you know, deep south states, but they perceived themselves... Um, as being more associated with other values at this point in time. Um, like Johnson was coming after Kennedy, whose stronghold was in Massachusetts, which PS is the stronghold of the Democrats now. Um, the Northeast was very much the Democratic foothold. And increasingly the Republicans were sort of like trying to figure out their own identity um, because, you know, now that the now that they couldn't be the abolitionist party, now that that was sort of like done and gone since the days of Lincoln, um, now that, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had been elected four consecutive terms, and now you've got Kennedy, who everybody loved, and Johnson, who, you know, is approving all this civil rights legislation, you know, it doesn't seem likely that anyone's going to be voting Republican. It is very much a rebuilding year for them. Um, enter Barry Goldwater. And Goldwater's plan was, now that the Democrats have been approving all this civil rights legislation, he can use that as a political wedge to divide the Democrats from the Deep South strongholds that they used to control. Um, the Democrats were the pro-union party, so a lot of working-class citizens tended to favor them, whereas the Republicans had sort of fallen in with, with the big-ticket entrepreneurs and industrialists. Um, they had the money but they didn't have the the people in many ways. Um, you know, again, FDR was totally pro-union, pro-worker, pro-employee you know, as opposed to employer. Um, so now Goldwater is looking at his, you know, big ticket donors and his big industrialist and big corporate, corporate sponsors, and he's thinking, well, where are we going to get the people? Where are we going to get the voters? And there just happened to be this huge population of now very disillusioned former Democrats who are very angry at the fact that all this civil rights legislation has been passed by their party. So Goldwater starts trying to figure out how do you turn all of those disgruntled white supremacists, all of those you know angry people, into allies of the party. Um, and the obvious answer was to make racial rights a political issue. Um, and this is sort of the foundation of the Republican Party as it's going to be um, in the next 50 years, because Goldwater's, we're talking about like late 60s, early 70s. Um, obviously, fast forward through Ronald Reagan, and you get, you know, the, the sort of party coalescing not just around now, you know, disenfranchised Democrats from the Deep South, but also, you know, the, the silent majority, the, the quiet vote, um, all, these, all these new evangelical Christian Republicans, all of these um, Republicans that are sort of working class people who are not impressed with the, the Democrats' record of, of you know, racial equality and, and legislation for unions. Um, 
now that unions weren't the biggest issue in town, it was pretty easy for the Republicans to start picking up the, the poor white vote, in short, um, by appealing to churches, by appealing to bigots, um, by appealing to an idea of a past that may or may not actually exist. Um, so the party structure that we have now is really kind of twisted as a consequence. Um, now you've got a Republicans that are composed on the one hand of those same rich, like corporate leaders, those rich industrialists, the, or at least the inheritors of the rich industrialists, those employers. Um, the Republicans are now appealing to them by offering tax breaks and offering, you know, um, like less government systems, less government oversight. In theory, this is about states' rights. Um, in practice, we only re refer to states' rights when the legislation we're trying to get across isn't successful on the federal level. Um, looking at you, Roe v. Wade, you know, gay marriage le legislation, etc., etc. Um, but in order to appeal to that that sort of wide voter base, those Christians, the, the bigots, and so on. Um, and again, I'm not trying to at all indicate that those are the same people, but there is quite a bit of overlap. Like, it's complicated and ugly, and I do not want to delve too deeply into this. Um, but in order to sort of appeal, especially to the evangelical vote, to, to people who sort of have enshrined these historical values, um, the Republican Party increasingly takes on what are frequently sort of portrayed as moral issues. Um, the, they oppose abortion. They are the pro-life party. Um, they oppose gay marriage. They oppose transgender rights. Um, that's sort of what the Republicans are increasingly inclined to sort of bill themselves as. On the one hand, they're appealing to the rich people by offering all those tax breaks, which, you know, everybody likes tax breaks. On the other hand, they are opposed to allowing these moral issues, the, they are opposed to the, quote, moral degradation um, of the country at large. Um, so as the Democrats are sort of like circling around these civil rights issues, like not just, you know, should black people have the same rights as white people, but also should gay people have the same rights? Should transgender people have the same rights? Should women have the same rights? Do we need to build more systems to accommodate the marginalization and sort of offset um, the marginalization of these people in society, as the Democrats are more and more focusing on that as the core of who they are, the Republicans are very much taking the opposite stance. We will not allow these legislative changes to go forward. We will not allow these democratic innovations to the law um, to go forward. Or at least that's the rhetoric that they are frequently framing it as. Um, which means that this is increasingly becoming a division across um, rural and urban lines as much as it is becoming a, a division across sort of like morality lines. Um, in the cities where there are tons of different people from tons of different backgrounds and tons of different perspectives, you have democratic strongholds, which isn't too much of a difference. Again, the, the, the cities were very much where the unions were, were sort of based as well. Um, so democratic values being popular in the cities is hardly a new idea. But increasingly, Republicans are just dominating, like steamrolling over 
the, the less urban areas. They're appealing to countryfied values. Um, and there's you know, a whole conversation that you can get into about com conservative and progressivism and urban versus rural and how that works historically. Like, I can't afford to get into it. We do not have enough time. Um, but increasingly, like, this also becomes a division across, like, something... How do I put this? So in the 90s, as like mass media is also changing as you go from you know the four or five major networks um to the cable system and everybody sort of listening to whatever they want on the radio everybody watching whatever they want on tv nobody having that sort of shared fundamental experience where like everybody watched the andy griffith show everybody watched leave it to beaver um the republicans sort of mined this fairly early on and discovered in it a powerful weapon um, so in the 90s, we have the rise of the conservative talk radio host. Um, obviously, Rush Limbaugh kind of springs to mind as like the dominant force in that, that way. But, you know, eventually AM radio became absolutely dominated uh, by these conservative voices. Um, and these are, were largely considered to be like trash in the 90s. Like, I don't want to, you know, again, step on toes, but these toes, I suspect, do need to get stepped on. Um, David Foster Wallace has an absolutely excellent essay where he's sort of interviewing and hanging around at this one conservative radio um, broadcaster's, like, broadcasting company. Um, and one of, the, one of the ways that the Republicans got their foot in the door is this was billed not as news, but as entertainment. Um, like, to this day, you check on the, the credentials of something like Rush Limbaugh or Tucker Carlson, and a judge will absolutely defend their right to broadcast, not on the grounds that they're, you know, free speech, this is the news, but rather free speech, this is entertainment. No rational person takes what they have to say seriously. Um, fast forward 20 years, and we're talking about Glenn Beck, we're talking about Alex Jones, we're talking about, like, wildly controversial and aggressive conservative voices taking the place of typical news like actual journalism um, these opinions have become more powerful than facts as far as journalistic integrity is concerned um, like rush limbaugh imus you know all of these guys they have no journalistic integrity they don't aspire to journalistic integrity they are not delivering journalism they never said that they were um, but increasingly, Republicans and like Republican voters are listening to these voices, taking them as journalism, and not questioning what they have to say. Um, add the internet to this in the late, like really late '90s and early 2000s, and you have literally divided the public into two whole perspectives on reality: um, what the Republicans believe is true is different from what the Democrats believe is true. Hence, Donald Trump being able to get up and say coronavirus is not as big a deal as it is, and everyone just accepting this. Um, and, you know, again, you can flip this, flip this script around. You can say that the mainstream media is propagating liberal propaganda um, and basically end up at exactly the same place. The country is divided and we do not disagree, and we do not agree on what the truth actually is. Um, that's also something that the founders could never possibly have anticipated. Um, they didn't live in a world where that was possible, where mass media could take the place 
of reality. They assumed that people would be able to clearly see their own self-interest. Like, the entire system is based on being able to, you know, vote and argue for your own self-interest. Not that it could be disguised and fed back to you in a distorted form. Um, again, my initial assumption was that Donald Trump was, you know, a person that people voted for against their own self-interest. This is how that is possible. They saw this as their own self-interest. Um, not because they're dumb, but because, like, these people have been told this for 30 years straight because they did not trust the people who did not have their self-interest in mind. If Republicans stood for them, and they frequently did, at least, you know, as far as they were concerned, and we can get into the motivations as grotesque as they are at some other time, as much as, you know... Republicans stood up for these white male voters disenfranchised by Democrats' increasing interest in other groups. And civil rights for people fundamentally different, fundamentally in, at odds and disagreeing with their way of doing things. Um, these disenfranchised voters turned to someone who would, and eventually that whole like perspective, that whole radical disconnect from what we would call the mainstream media, what we would call factual objective journalism, became more entrenched to the point that now it's two different versions of reality. Um, and again, I realize I'm not doing justice to any of this. I'm just trying to give an outline. Um, at the very least, you'll notice that the same principles that we were talking about like earlier in this lecture are now very much in conflict with each other. Um, this idea that government is designed to defend the rights of property is in conflict with the idea that, you know, people should be able to be stand up for whatever ideas and freedoms they have. Um, this idea that we should be distributing goods according to some meritocratic or democratic ideal are now put in stark contrast with each other. You can't have it both ways. It's either democracy or meritocracy, not a synthesis of the two. Um, and to both sides of the conversation, their perspective is being threatened. Republicans' merit meritocratic policies are being threatened by Democrats' democratic policies um, to the point of an existential threat. People are now scared that justice is not being conducted on both sides. It's not like, you know, there are Republicans out there that are, who, are, who are like, yes, I am trying to perpetrate injustice on people. There are absolutely some. Um, but I would imagine that the majority are saying, no, I am the victim of injustice perpetrated by democratic policies through the Democratic Party. Um, this is no long it is no longer clear what justice should even look like and the fact that we cannot even have a discussion about meritocracy versus democracy where that balance should lie or even make compromises on that line that's where you get into the place where people are just screaming at each other and cannot even understand the language they're speaking um like if you spend a lot of time reading you know breitbart you will not understand how the new york times can make the arguments that it can and vice versa you look at it as nonsense you cannot see the merit in the other side's perspective because they're not using the same words they're not using the same methods they're not using the same language in short um we are a divided nation now speaking either conservative ease or progressive ease, and obviously you can't communicate in, under those circumstances. Um, 
and I don't want to downplay this. Like, as much as I have sort of been stressing throughout that the American Constitution is a flawed document in its very inception, I also want to point out that, like, history has not been kind to it. Like, it has been run through the ringer, especially recently. Um, and it needs fixing. But the trouble is, the only way to fix the Constitution is to use the Constitution to do it. Um, and at this point, it is so exploited and it is so broken and the problems with it are so glaringly obvious um, that it is really hard to, 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 do, to use any of the methods that would be necessary to make a change. Like, we need a revolution in short, whether legal or outside of the law. Um, we need to fix this system and in order to do that, we're going to need to seriously reevaluate the rights that we have been offered. Like, we have to have the conversation, you know, is free speech protecting the ability of people to, you know, lie or disseminate misinformation on the internet or otherwise? Um, we need to have the conversation. Like, it's a really tough conversation to have, but at this point, our own values are very much in opposition to themselves. Um, the idea that intellectual freedom is an, a core part of who we are, now that is in opposition with the idea that, you know, people should not be judged, not receive property according to superficial ideas like their race or their religion or their creed. Because there are literally people out there who are using their freedom of speech to say, we should stop giving, you know, stuff to people according to these guidelines. Black people should be disenfranchised, they are saying. Um, Muslims should be disenfranchised. They do not share the same rights. Um, that's really tough. Like, how do you defend one part of the Constitution while the other part is under such violent attack? Um, it was supposed to be all one, one philosophy, all one perspective, all one document, but now it's fragmented. Um, now the very philosophical principles that we abide by are thrown into conflict with one another. Um, since there is not one single guiding principle that defines America, um, the principles that we do have are being used against one, one another. Um, and that brings me to my third question, and I think the most important of them, honestly. Um, at the end of the last lecture, I asked, um, is the Founder's picture of human nature accurate? Um, like the founders obviously have this idea of human nature as being selfish, as being like driven by their own profit, by property, as we've said before in this lecture. Um, and that the, the goal of government is to use that selfishness against that selfishness to come to like the common good. Um, that if you throw the weakness of human nature against the weakness of human nature, you can build a machine that fixes it. Um, the machine, you know, takes in human greed and spits out human benefit. Um, but the question that I was asking as far as that idea is concerned is what if we are building a system that rewards and encourages people to be crappy to each other? Um, like, if the entire Enlightenment system is based on the idea that humans are selfish, but that selfishness can be used to humans' advantage, that we can sort of, like, build a system that doesn't require people to get better, but instead just uses human awfulness 
and like uses pits it against each other to spit out something good does that mean that we have become worse people because we've relied on our system to fix it for us um, and I use the example of like it's a common educational axiom that students will only accomplish what you ask them to do what you expect them to do if you expect them to fail they will fail if you teach down to them they will not learn but if you expect more from them then they will rise to the occasion um, and i think too of, of aristotle like one of my all-time favorite statements about political philosophy occurs in the nicomachean ethics where he basically points out like in the very first chapter that if the whole goal of ethics is human happiness um, where happiness is defined as like self-perfection, as you know, making oneself the best version of oneself possible, then the role of government for Aristotle is to encourage people to be the best that they can be. And America fails so hard at that. Um, like, don't get me wrong, there are some who really do accomplish, and there is room to thrive in American society. Um, like, I would imagine that many of our artists, many of our, our scientists, many of our you know, great captains of industry, as much as we hate our capitalists, as much as you know, we are upset at so many of the institutions that have been built, um, and as much of, of the artists that get perspective, like they probably would not have had nearly the room to grow in another society that did not emphasize this freedom of ideological expression, this um, you know, the sort of like very high ceiling on what the high, the heights of accomplishment could be. Um, but the trouble is that next to that is the fact that we measure success and accomplishment, not in terms of human perfection, not in human self-betterment, but in property. Um, because again, this, this idea that like people should should you know be free to pursue their own happiness is married to this idea that government is devoted to protecting property happiness is measured in property and that's really messed up um because you know any old school christian any old school pagan any stoic any philosopher like dating all the way back to plato could have told you that money doesn't get you happiness um your happiness will not be measured by the stuff that you have. Um, it just isn't. Um, this is a fundamental truth, although admittedly a difficult one to wrap your brain around and very difficult to, to sort of like, to sort of practice in any real way. And like Aristotle will be the first to admit that, you know, you've got to have some, some wealth in order to be happy. Like, if you are completely destitute, there's basically no way for you to be happy. There are limits here. Um, but at the same time, if property is the only reward system that our government can perceive, if the only way that our government sees to operate is to incentivize, you know, profit, um, if the only way that the government can convince people to act like decent behaviors is with financial rewards, that's not going to make us better people. It's just going to make us greedier people. Um, and that sucks. Like, that's a fundamental failing. Something that is so entrenched in the, the Founders' Enlightenment ideals that you cannot be undone. Um, like, it just can't. It's root. Um, if you dig it out, you dig out the entire system with it. Like, from the ground up, it would need to be re rebuilt. Um, 
And I think that this is a damning problem with America. Um, and it's one of those that, you know, it wasn't so bad, or at least it wasn't so noticeable, wasn't so obvious in the 18th century. Like you hear these stories about, oh, you know, people used to be civilized back then. People used to have honor back then. Um, the founders relied on the morality of, of, the, of the populace in addition to the system that they built. And to some degree that might be true, but in another degree, like, no, it's total bullshit. Like history is is full of just exploitative, horrible practices, slavery being perhaps the most obvious. Um, but this idea of gentility certainly goes out the window when you have senators beating the shit out of each other in Congress before the Civil War takes place. Like, no, that is a myth. And I, I'm not going to, you know, let it fly. Um, I am going to stress that the whole of American accomplishment is built on a profit motive that is itself base, mean, selfish, and wrong. Um, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give quarter on that one. Um, and as much as I do respect and admire so many of the other American ideas, this, you know, again, religious and ideological freedom, the, the pluralism, um, the, the idea that, you know, like, justice should be practiced, whether proprietarian or otherwise, um, so that like the rights of the, the weak are observed even while the, the privileges of the strong are protected. Like I see the value in a lot of these things, but if, if at the end of the day, the only way to, that, you know, our government recognizes accomplishment is through what you have, your money, your, your goods, your land, your property, that's philosophically bankrupt and leads to a very dark dead end. Um, we need to be able to look beyond that. We need to incentivize better behavior than perceiving property um, as you know the only good to which we can aspire. Um, and I think that that's kind of the fundamental problem that that we're wrestling with now as well. Um, like whether you are Democrat or Republican, whether you are pro-Trump or pro-Biden, whether you are you know in favor of the the protesters and the the riots or not. At the end of the day, you know, the whole conversation of, of like, are people getting what they deserve is assuming that deserving requires profit. Like, that's the problem. Somebody who loots a target in, in, by way of protest is still, at the end of the day, supporting a system that says stuff equals success. Um, and that's not to say that like you can just ignore it, that you can say, well, if you don't care about property, well then you don't get any. So, you know, be poor and deal with it. Like that's also nonsense and ridiculous and awful. Um, what I'm stressing here is not that people don't need stuff, but rather that people need to see stuff as just one of a myriad of possible benefits that a government or a society can offer. Um, stuff is very much equated with everything else at this point. You get into positions of power through your wealth. Um, you get into positions of honor and fame through wealth by, you know, making lots of money. Um, it is very rare in our society now for someone to be famous and also poor. Um, and if they are famous, they quickly stop being poor. Um, money is always bound up with everything else that's going on. So if there is, you know, 
if there is a fundamental problem with the with the American Constitution, with the whole American experiment, um, I don't think it is the Enlightenment value of universality, the Enlightenment value of rationality, as as tempting as that may be. Um, I don't think it is the problem of pluralism. Like for sure, there are issues there, and it's difficult to sort of hold on to, but I think that it's a meritorious thing to strive for. I think at the end of the day, the problem with Enlightenment philosophy, with the whole American experiment, is that we basically devoted all of our laws to defending and encouraging ownership. Um, and we can't see past it. Um, that's a more violent change of perspective than virtually any of the others um, that I've talked about in the last couple lectures. So, I guess, like, as I said, this is what encourages people to be bad. Um, it is a system that encourages greed, that rewards it, that says that it is the only good, the only accomplishment that you can aspire to. Um, and I'm not sure what the alternative would be. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I don't have answers as far as that's concerned. The other, the other typical things that the ancients especially thought were valuable, stuff like fame or honor, uh, power in the sort of grand sense, um, those things tend to be kind of tied to small communities. Um, you cannot have fame unattached to wealth in a society of 300 plus million, let alone the 7 billion on the earth. Um, like, it worked independently in small towns for a long time. And I think that's actually part of the reason why Republicans have gotten so lost is because the small town is increasingly dying in our culture. Um, where once it was totally reasonable for a community of like several thousand or even fewer to, to flourish under its own steam, to sort of be self-sufficient, to, to, you know, run its own show, that's increasingly been drowned out. You know, the, the corner drugstore has been taken out by the local Walmart. The, you know, the farmers who used to own just a couple of acres have been bought out by the ones who own thousands. Um, the people who provided food for your community have been overrun by the people who, you know, ship off their... their chicken and cellophane packets from some central location in Iowa or wherever. Um, our increased globalization has drummed out small communities, and it has made the situation worse. Um, it has made profit the only measurable success metric, um, because all the other ones, like, there is no, no dignity anymore um, in being your local car mechanic or the local farmer or the local doctor. Um, there is no, no prestige in being the pastor who knows everybody's name in town. Um, it's not acceptable to be just important enough to be the head of a community or to be a major leader in your community or to provide an essential service for all of your community. It is now, everything is measured on this global scale. Um, everything is drowned out by a global media, a global uh, economy, a global government. Um, and by that I mean like national in the case of, you know, American government, not so much like the UN. 
Um, but the scale is so increased because we can see the whole world now from the comfort of our living rooms, be it television or internet or whatever, that's the scope that we now understand the world in. Um, and the only way to measure up in that world is to get your message out there, which means broadcast time, which means money. Um, that's the only metric. And that sucks. Like, that's really bad. It took the American tendency towards selfishness, greed, and the profit motive and just ratcheted it up to 11. Um, where it used to be that American society permitted a virtuous person to live a virtuous life you know, enjoying the benefits of their community's approval, um, that's increasingly getting drummed out. It's harder and harder to see that. Um, it still happens. Like, I don't want to pretend like it's extinct. Um, it certainly isn't. Um, it's just that the vast majority of us can no longer appreciate it anymore. Again, the accomplishments of your local community are drowned out by the conversations being had at much higher levels. Um, so that I think is the fundamental problem I think that is if like there is one philosophical issue that is responsible for where we are today I think it is that one um, this prioritization of, of property over all other benefits um, and the government defense of property as a fundamental tenet of our, of our constitution and I don't think it is defensible to fully answer Wes's question. Like a lot of the other fundamental principles, fundamental philosophical ideas at stake in American government, I think are totally defensible. I think a conversation can be had. I think you can argue each way on the subject of pluralism or on the subject of meritocracy versus democracy, on the subject of you know whether government should be defending property. I think all of that is there. But as far as property being the only thing that government values and represents and defends, no, utterly indefensible, utterly grotesque, um, especially in the sort of level that it's been identified at this point. Um, it is destroying us, like not even gonna mince words. It is absolutely no question destroying us. And on some level, it has nothing to do with Donald Trump, with Joe Biden, with any of these you know, individual politicians, both Democrats and Republicans are guilty of this error, um, of, of prioritizing money, wealth, property over all of the other things um, that are so incredibly important and valuable to human life. Um, I think that more than anything is what's gonna ultimately destroy us. Um, and this isn't just a Christian thing. Like Christians, obviously, money is the root of all evil. That's, that's an important perspective. But even like from a secular philosophy standpoint, this is such an obvious failing. Um, this is such a huge problem that our government is literally telling us to be worse people um, by incentivizing bad behavior. It, it's just, it's, that's going to be what does it. Um, that's going to be what ultimately destroys all of the good ideas um, that were instituted at the beginning of this, this whole American experiment and project. Um, so I realize that's quite a downer to end on. Um, but I also want to flip it around. Like, with that in mind, don't buy it. Um, seek out organizations of people and connections with people that are completely independent of the profit motive. Um, like, get angry 
with your congressman about like devaluing um, the interests of people who you know can't pay their bills. Um, defend your right to do things like have a family, um, to you know accomplish things in your own community, and seek out those rewards. Like get if you were working on some shitty job, yeah, join the crowd. So am I. We're I'm not making a whole lot of money, and neither are you. Seek out self-actualization in other ways. Um, like, join a fan fiction community. Join, you know, people online who are who enjoy your hobby as well. Um, build connections with people that have nothing to do with money. Um, and when you see them prioritizing money, get on their case about it. Like, immediately step it down. Um, champion philanthropy, charity. If you put pressure on organizations to either, you know, be decent contributing members of our society or not survive things will change um like th there's for decades i've heard the excuse that you know it's not their fault their job is to make money that's nonsense um utter complete total nonsense never take that stance um or if you do make sure that it is always with the caveat that you do not condone it um like value what is what is made what is done what is accomplished not by you know the 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 profit motive that do not evaluate a company's success or failure by how what their bottom line is um and don't seek for you know self-actualization in that territory yes being rich would make your life a lot easier it also tends to make things a lot more complicated and a lot harder um it should not be the goal to which we all aspire um so what I would call for more than anything is not some sort of radical anarchist objective. I don't think that that has a whole lot of likelihood of success in our time, not now anyway. Nor would I say, you know, join the Democrats, Trump is the worst. Like, as much as I believe that, my allegiance to the Democrats is only in as far as my distrust of the Republicans at this point. Like, their agenda is as profit-motivated as the Republicans at this point, as is obvious from, you know, who their candidates are and how they support the, the, the people who they, you know, are presenting as their candidates. Um, instead, value something else. Suffice it to say that do not tolerate... Do not tolerate a perpetuation of the profit motive. Um, and I don't like mean that as an attack on capitalism, although that's certainly like one of the consequences, a fairly logical consequence there. Um, capitalism was a good system when it supported, you know, the accomplishments of individuals, when it recognized that, you know, the profit motive served the public good, but now the profit motive is the public good and that, that's a wild confusion and misinterpretation of anything good that might have come out of capitalism. Um, I think of Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward, um, which, you know, is a very utopian capitalistic society, but it never forgets what capitalism is supposed to do, unlike ours. Um, suffice it to say, you know, find meaning where you can find it. Find purpose where you can find it. Don't look to money. Don't look to power to do that. And don't tolerate people who say that that's how it should be. Um, fight those people, argue with them. Um, do not 
disenfranchise people for that purpose like don't say to people who are poor that you should find joy in other things um that's a horrible thing to say because some amount of money some amount of property is still necessary but if it wasn't a priority then it would probably be easier to actually get it for them um, if people weren't so greedy about the stuff that they already have it would be easier to give away um to the people who really do in fact need it um food and water isn't important until it is i guess is what i'm trying to say um and if you are if you are in the position where you know it is a luxury then you should stop before you make yourself miserable with it um anyhow yeah sorry if this got completely wide-ranging out of control i'm already at an hour and 40 minutes and counting and again i'm probably going to cut out quite a bit of this but um i hope that this was productive i certainly like i certainly think i by reflecting and thinking about this stuff have a much better understanding than i did once before um and i hope that you do as well going forward things have gotten a rather exciting on my end um it's been a busy and rough couple of weeks uh i know that this one i would initially recorded it um last week uh the tuesday after the election um only to not be happy with it and spend a lot of time editing it as i suggested um but in that time quite a bit has happened uh both on my end and globally but we won't get into that um i do have more questions though uh in the last few days i've gotten two requests from far shores in some cases uh i have a request all the way from belgrade which i'm really excited about um so hey thanks for listening like keep tuning in i will absolutely get to these questions when i get the chance um the first of the questions that i'm going to be dealing with is about sart um our belgrade friend specifically wanted to to ask about uh sartrean perspective on phenomenology um versus transgression which is again way above my pay grade but i'm excited to do some research and see what i can find out about it um so maybe not next week probably two weeks or so based on all the grading i've got to do and the other stuff that i'm sort of busy with at the moment um but keep tuning in keep asking questions uh if you are listening to this and you want to hear more by all means email me at profbkozlowski2 at gmail.com there should be a link somewhere in the vicinity of the description again there are so many platforms i can't keep track of how they how they all deal with this um but keep those questions coming i'll i'll do my best to to stay on top of them and keep getting back to you and give you some more insights into the weird and wormy world that is my brain um but in the meantime stay safe um again keep looking for things to that bring you meaning um and i will talk to you soon <laughs>